Splendid Table is brought to you by all the chickens at Locally Laid Egg Company. Producing high-quality, delicious eggs for over a decade, Locally Laid prioritizes good lives for their hens. Locally Laid Egg Company also partners with rural farmers to keep agriculture clucking along in Minnesota. Locally sourced, locally sold, that's Locally Laid. You can learn more about visiting the flock at the farm's Airbnb at locallylaid.com. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. So I'm not a huge Christmas carol guy. I didn't really grow up with them in the house, so I mostly know them from, you know, like going to the mall. But a few weeks ago, I saw the most amazing video out there on the internets. Jordan Davis. He is a defensive tackle for the Philadelphia Eagles. He is a man who is six foot six, 336 pounds, runs a 40-yard dash in 4.7 seconds, and his job is to obliterate opposing 220-pound men. And in this video, he's surrounded by his teammates, and he is shy? He's giggling. He literally starts meowing like a cat to get his nerves out. And then he sings the most unbelievably gorgeous rendition of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. It's jaw-dropping. And hearing it, you know, like, I just couldn't help but feel that whether you celebrate Christmas or not, there's really something magical about the spirit of celebration. How we want to have traditions and songs and rituals and gatherings no matter who we are. If you're anything like me, those gatherings are going to have food and drink. Well, no matter what you have going on, we've got a little something that you will want to have room for. Later in the show, we've got drinks with my dear friend Tony Tipton-Martin, author of the new book, Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs, and Juice. We've got fantastic desserts with cooking video star and best-selling author of What's for Dessert, Claire Saffitz. And, well... Okay, I don't know if I intentionally set out to find the most Christmas-loving cook on Earth, but we may have found him. Nick Sharma is the award-winning author of a whole collection of beautiful, delicious cookbooks filled with just enough food science to make you a genius cook. His latest is called Veg Table, and we're going to start a holiday feast by eating our vegetables with him. Hey, Nick, it's great to see you. Hi, Francis. It's wonderful to see you. I have to know, how do you celebrate the holidays? aggressively and excessively i'm all about like the craziness of christmas <laughs> why is that how did you become mr christmas i don't think i have that title yet because we actually don't do a lot outside the house inside the house i'm definitely you know i've got a christmas tree in the kitchen which only has um ornaments that resemble food or something uh-huh. and like the living room has its own regular christmas tree but i'm really particular about it because that was the one holiday that i grew up celebrating and mm. it started in november India doesn't have Thanksgiving. There's no need for a Thanksgiving. So Christmas started in November and then it ended, um, I think, two weeks later in January after. Yeah, because my grandmother was very like hardcore Catholic. And so that's kind of like the you can just imagine. But um, when I moved to America, it's the best and the most colorful time of the year, to be honest, because everyone is so festive. The stores get lit up. The streets are, you know, decorated. And I love it. And then boom, like as soon as New Year's ends, you feel the harshness of winter and everything is just so sad. Oh. <laughs> all the colors are gone. All the lights are gone. Oh, no. Everyone's now so depressed and aggravated about winter. But that's why I love Christmas time so much. Oh, God. I, you know, I love your sense of color. And uh, I actually appreciate that you've come to this interview in your uh, Snoopy Christmas sweater. <laughs> but you're totally right. It is something that like all the decorations, they go away. I mean, we keep our decorations up for a while. Um, but it is true. And especially if, you know, folks who had Christmas trees, you know, bring them out to the curb for, for garbage. There's a certain, uh, oh, now it's just winter. <laughs> but how did you celebrate it in terms of the food you were eating? You, you were, you'd mentioned you had all these rituals and traditions that you grew up with. Uh, yeah. So Christmas for me growing up was the biggest holiday. The second one would have been New Year's and then Easter would be the third one. And in India, I grew up in Bombay and about, I want to say somewhere around the end of October, 
everyone in my mother's family would start taking time off because they would start working on preparing the sweets for Christmas. So in India, Christmas, mm. at least in the Christian communities, it's a big deal. And a lot of people also get married around that time because, oh, wow. uh, the, yeah, it's it's actually really hard getting a reservation at a church or even finding a venue. And the other thing that happens is everyone takes leave from work legally or illegally, I'm not quite sure, but it seemed like everyone was taking weeks (laughs) off just to sit at home and make Christmas sweets. And not only would they make Christmas sweets, one of the things my grandmother would do was also prepare sorpatel and bindaloo, which are two pork dishes. Usually they were made a month in advance and then stuck in the freezer. Mm. And then Christmas Day, they would be brought out and served. So there was a lot of preparation done in advance because this was every family's moment to shine. Kind of everybody's competing with the quality of sweets and cakes that they produce <laughs> between neighbors, friends and family. So it's a fun time. And yeah, it just brings back a lot of memories. So I've tried to hold on to that tradition. I love that. That's so sweet. So, um, you know, it's funny because on the surface, it wouldn't seem that all this uh, festive, joyous holiday talk necessarily um, beats the moment with your vegetable book, Veg Table. But <laughs> I, you know, I was flipping through it and there are so many dishes in there that I would love to see on a festive table. And I know the holidays are not necessarily the time for recipe experimentation. There's actually been all these hilarious videos and memes floating around social media about people getting angry. <laughs> like, you, you, do, you do not experiment with macaroni and cheese. Not on Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> but there are so many smart, cool recipes in your book. And some that actually do find a place for like a, a more sort of typical Christmas meal. So let's start with your crispy cauliflower with tomatillo salsa verde. Tell us about this dish. So this was a dish that I created because in America, people really love stuffing or dressing. I feel people fight battles for this, whether it's called dressing or stuffing, which is probably a whole episode for you. But <laughs> we'll cover I, that next wanted year. To re- <laughs> I wanted to create something that was more vegetable forward, but also retained its, that you know, that crunchy crispiness that comes with breading and... Usually breading is kind of like a casserole where it's soft in the center because it's baked with Mm -hmm. eggs or some kind of liquid. And then on top, it's crusty. I kind of wanted the texture to kind of just be sprinkled around. So what I did was I reverse engineered everything and I got back a lot of the grain by adding cauliflower. Cauliflower is one of those excellent vegetables that has a neutral, more or less neutral taste profile, Mm -hmm. but roasts really well. Sure. And becomes very aromatic, much more than when it's fresh. And so what I did in this recipe was I wanted something fun that created those textures, but was more vegetable forward. So here comes the cauliflower. And then what I did was instead of mixing the breadcrumbs with the whole thing and making some kind of cauliflower casserole, I cooked the breadcrumbs separately. And then you add that just before serving with the tomatillo salsa verde on the side or with it because you can hold on to that crunchiness so it's not lost. And it's such an excellent way just if you're missing stuffing or dressing, you can serve that. But also if you just want a, you know, a really nice vegetable main course that's simple to make, this is your dish. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I at first when I read the head note of the recipe and you said this dish reminds you of stuffing, I, was, I scratched my head a little bit. And then I... You know, the cauliflower has become this sort of uh, avatar of a vegetable where, you know, you see cauliflower rice now. You see people doing like cauliflower pizza crusts. And, you know, whether or not they are true substitutes is a little bit open for debate. But there is a certain starchiness to cauliflower that I can sort of imagine. And when you have a nice amount of it and it's been roasted deeply, so it's nice and soft in the middle... And you have those crispy breadcrumbs on top. I can sort of see. Plus, you, I think you do uh, like dried cranberries or dried cherries to have a little bit more of that that sort of holiday feel mm-hmm. too. It's it's a cool sounding combination. Thank you. Yeah, I love in general when I make recipes. I like a little bit of savoriness, but also like pops of sour and sweet. Mm. And the dried fruits, especially the, you know cranberries and dried cherries, are very festive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, they, you know, the pops of red color, but they're also sweet and really bright. So I love having them in there because it kind of just gives a nice pop. Otherwise, I feel textures and flavors become quite monotonous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, the other th- the another recipe that I was really drawn to is the carrot apple harissa soup. And it was incredibly simple. You roast carrots, you roast apples, and then you basically puree them with water and I think some ginger and some lemon and harissa, certainly. But I noticed a very unusual ingredient uh, you you season the carrots and apples before you roast them, but you also add a pinch of baking soda when you do it. Why? What does that do? 
So many years ago, I was reading the Modernist Cuisine Cookbook, the, the original series. Mm. And they talk about pressure cooking and using baking soda to develop flavor and stocks, vegetable stocks, especially with vegetables that are rich in sugar. Now, carrots are rich in sugar naturally, and so are apples. It's a fruit, right? And so I did that here in this recipe where you add a tiny pinch of baking soda. What it does is that not only does it help soften the pectin, which gives vegetables and fruits their hardness or the rather their firmness okay. it helps break it down but also during the process of heating it starts to develop better flavors because baking soda is a catalyst for two flavor developing reactions in vegetables the caramelization of sugars and the maillard reaction which takes place between sugars and amino acids on proteins so you're kind of getting multiple benefits from just throwing this tiny pinch of baking soda and i also realized it improves the texture because it breaks down the starches and then the starches kind of morph mm. and they help thicken the soup naturally much better yeah. <laughs> i love this because this is like this is like a perfect nick sharma moment it's like oh yeah it's carrot <laughs> apple soup but oh by the way have i ever told you i'm a scientist yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that sounds amazing. So so literally a little pinch of baking soda will make the carrots caramelize. Like even before you like roast the bejesus out. So you get caramelized flavor without getting mm -hmm. to the point where they're mm -hmm. so brown and dried out and Absolutely. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's just one of those things where like a tiny bit goes a long way. And I love that it pays off. And the dividends are just so many in such different ways. Flavor, texture, even the aroma. I find the aroma is actually much more sweeter. And then it really plays well with the harissa. That's so interesting. Okay, so carrots and harissa are obviously, a, 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 they've become a very favorite flavor pairing. I think they're very typical of Moroccan, you know, Moroccan carrots are often flavored with harissa. Why do you think those flavors work so well together? I think because, you know, the carrots are just so sweet. Mm -hmm. Harissa, on the other hand, is this hot. Usually it's very hot depending on the type of chilies that I used to make it. But it's usually really hot. It's got a savory kind of earthy balance to it. Mm -hmm. And for one, I think this may be my personal bias, but carrots are grown in soil. So whenever I think of the, you know, soil and carrots, I'm thinking earthy. I want more earthy flavors from the vegetable because it's a root vegetable. The same thing with parsnips. I would do the same thing because I'm trying to build on what my internal biases are telling me and Harissa just delivers that. And I think that's why <laughs> it's such a popular pairing. We'll be back with more from Nick Sharma, author of Vegetable, Recipes, Techniques, and Plant Science for Big-Flavored, Vegetable-Focused Meals. Then we're off to meet the dessert person herself, Claire Saffitz. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com, and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're getting some inspiration for our holiday feasts. We're getting back to it with Nick Sharma, author of Vegetable. I know you want to talk about one more dish, which is your stuffed cabbage rolls and tomato sauce because they are Christmas colors and you are on your way to becoming Mr. Christmas. <laughs> so go for it. <laughs> okay, so this comes back to my grandmother, my late grandmother. So she used to make these cabbage rolls. She loved stuffing vegetables with meat. And one of the things she'd do is she'd cook ground beef or mutton and flavor it with different spices, kind of make a keema, which is mm. the generic term for Indian ground meat. And 
what she do is, so in, in going culture, they use vinegar. So what in her recipe originally was to take cabbage leaves and then she dipped them in boiling water to help soften them, make a little mm-hmm. V-notch at the end of the leaf where the stem is. And then she'd fill it up with uh, the ground beef, roll it up like a little cigar and then mm-hmm. steam or rather braise it in tomato sauce and then, yeah. you know, season it with like extra spices or whatever. So I decided for this book, I really wanted to do this dish. And at the time, I did not think about Christmas. I did not realize that the green and the red color were, you know, <laughs> were very obvious. It was only till we had a call that I thought about it. But I realized that this is a dish where I can show people how, you know, the art, I feel that one of the things we really don't do with vegetables these days in cookbooks, it's always focused on chopping, sauteing, frying, and, you know, braising and all those things. But we really don't play and have fun with them. And for me, this was one way to kind of bring that in where I can show people, oh, you can fold leaves, stuff them, you know, do a lot of like cool things with them. So these cabbage rolls are basically that. I made it vegetarian by including a mixture of mashed potatoes and lentils that are pre-cooked. They get folded in and the technique is the same. Again, I use canned tomatoes on top to braise the cabbage leaves. And then I do a tarka, which is basically um, a flavoring technique where you're layering with spices infused into hot oil. Ooh, yeah. And finishing with that. Oh, God, I love that. I love that technique because you, you add this like fresh flavor of these like sizzled spices at the end. And it's so aromatic when it hits the table. Yeah. And at the holidays, I feel people are looking for a little bit of flair and drama at the dinner table. So if you can do the tarka, <laughs> even just opening the dish at the table, everybody's going to go, wow, it's such a simple, easy thing to do. But if you can wow your guests and get away with that, you know, what do they say? Fake it till you make it. This is one of those dishes. <laughs> Right on. Well, okay. Like, let, let me ask you one more thing. Uh, what's a great holiday gift? I'm actually, you know, I have some okay. people <laughs> I need to shop for. And I'm just like gathering ideas. Okay, great holiday gift. So my favorite holiday gift to receive at Christmas is a Christmas tree ornament shaped either as a vegetable or some kind of <laughs> dessert or fruit because I can hang it on the tree and... I love when people do that. Like I've had a couple of friends who've now picked up on that. And it's the only time I think is it's just so cool. And you can use it year after year. You bring it out. It makes it so special. This is a very specific gift, but I am glad that it is now on my radar for <laughs> from my friends who are obsessed with their own Christmas trees. Well, thank you so much, Nick. Have great holidays. And it's been so fun talking with you. You too, Francis. Thanks for having me. Nick Sharma is author of VegTable, Recipes, Techniques, and Plant Science for Big-Flavored, Vegetable-Focused Meals. He left us with that recipe for stuffed cabbage rolls, and you'll find it at SplendidTable.org. So we're going to go from vegetables right into dessert, and who better to do that with than Claire Saffitz, one of the Internet's most beloved cooking stars, a two-time New York Times bestselling author, and dessert person extraordinaire. Claire is someone I turn to both when I really want to learn how to make something classic and when I want to just taste something brand new. Her latest book is called What's for Dessert? Simple Recipes for Dessert People. Hey, Claire. Happy holidays. Hi, Francis. How are you? So nice to be here. I am so happy to see you. You know, I just realized, (laughs) you know how like um, there's this thing in restaurants where the pastry chef is kind of like the closer in baseball Uh like that's the person the whole team relies on to make sure the guest leaves with a good impression (laughs) right (laughs) it's like all of a sudden it's like all on this one person and like you know really great dessert can obviously sometimes save a kind of meh meal yeah um but not to put too much pressure on that person but like for a big festive holiday meal Mm -hmm. you kind of want dessert to do the same thing yep (laughs) so luckily we have you today right thank you thank you and i (laughs) I take the pressure in a good way. I take it as a positive thing. I feel like dessert is part of the meal. So you should pay as much, if not more, attention to it compared to the rest of the meal. And also it's like dessert is so often that thing you can do in advance. And so you can actually start making it first before you start on the meal. And therefore you feel like fresh and you have your like energy to devote to it. So Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. think that there's no reason why dessert should not be like the best part of the whole meal, even if the rest of the meal is fantastic. So start, yeah. you want to end on a high note. Yeah. And one thing I always love about your recipes is like, oh, you can go as highly technical as anyone, but I, I think you truly genuinely love great desserts you can make ahead without a lot of stress. Yes. And that really shows. Um, 
So, okay, so if we are planning a dessert for our wonderful holiday meal this year, what's on your mind? What do you suggest for us? Yeah, so it's wintertime, and I really gravitate toward fruit desserts. And in winter, Mm -hmm, your options are obviously a little more limited than they are in summer when you have, like, all the berries and stone fruit. But one thing I cherish about winter is citrus fruit. So I love a a citrusy dessert, especially if during the holidays you're eating stuff that's a little heavier Mm -hmm. and, like, a little richer. So a citrus dessert, I think, is a great bright way to round out a meal. Of course, I think chocolate is also a great for the holidays, but I am, this might surprise some people knowing that I am a dessert person, but I'm less of a chocolate <laughs> person, really. Um, mm. I, I mean, I like chocolate, of course. It's an incredible flavor and ingredient, but I, I do gravitate much more toward fruit desserts. So one dessert that I really have in mind for the holidays is a recipe from my second cookbook, which is called What's for Dessert? And it is at the end of a chapter that is a little bit of a catch-all that's like desserts, baked in the oven that are not cakes or pies or tarts or anything like that. Um, it's like a, a dessert. Chapter title rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> right. It's, I mean, but, well, I thought about it actually first as kind of like everything that doesn't fit in another chapter, but really what unites sure. it is that everything <laughs> is kind of a custard-based dessert. You know, those things like creme brulee and, and other custards. But what I have in that chapter are a couple of bread puddings. Mm-hmm. And I'm not so much of a bread pudding person. I'm really kind of like taking a long time to get to what the recipe is. But I did <laughs> I did set out a goal for myself with this chapter to develop a couple of bread puddings that I really love. And so I thought, why not take bread pudding, which is this kind of heavier dessert, mm-hmm. and try to lighten it up by doing a citrus version. So I have this recipe that's a souffléed lemon bread pudding. And it's God. so good and weirdly light, like surprisingly light. And the reason uh-huh. it's called souffléed is because it has egg whites that are beaten and then they're folded into that custard bread base mm, and baked. Okay. So it really kind of puffs up in the oven and gets super light. And then you have that combination of a light texture plus this like really intense citrusy flavor from lemon curd. And it's served with a little bit of lemon curd on the side as like a sauce. So it it is almost you'll I would think you would surprise people by serving this and calling it bread pudding because it is so kind of light and citrusy, but it also is rich the way that bread pudding should be rich. Yeah, that sounds so good. And I love bread pudding actually, but often bread pudding is really dense. Mm-hmm. But I never thought to lighten it by adding beaten egg whites and to puff it. So that sounds super awesome. But tell me about the lemon curd piece of it. I love lemon curd as a flavor. I'm often nervous making it because I always think, you know, there's a lot of acid, there's heat, you got to control the temperature. What if it splits or gets grainy? How do you, how do you prevent that? Lemon curd actually is the first kind of baking or pastry recipe that I remember making completely by myself in the kitchen as like a kid. Um, And I think I was watching an episode of Martha Stewart, maybe Martha Bakes or something like that. And I saw her make it and I thought to myself, I, I can do that. And I went over and I juiced some lemons and like, you know, whisked everything together and cooked it. And according to my own memory, it did turn out. But I remember the feeling of stirring that custard and thinking like, oh my gosh, am I going to curdle it? Am I going to cook the eggs? Is mm-hmm, it going to mm-hmm, not be smooth? Mm-hmm. So it is a type of recipe referred to as a stirred custard because you have this mixture of eggs and liquid, typically with a custard, that liquid is dairy, like cream or milk. Um, but in the case of lemon curd, that liquid is lemon juice, or it could be lime juice or another citrus. So you have this mixture of eggs and sugar and lemon juice, and you're cooking everything together and stirring it constantly over the stove. So stirred custard as opposed to like a baked custard. Mm-hmm, and yeah, you are bringing up the temperature slowly until those eggs cook and it thickens the mixture. So Mm -hmm. there are some telltale signs that your curd is cooked. One of them is that often the surface of your mixture is frothy from whisking and that foam will kind of subside. The mixture will subtly turn from translucent to a little bit more opaque. And then, of course, Mm -hmm. you'll see the actual texture thicken and the, the sort of classic doneness test for curd is, does it coat the back of a spoon? And when you Mm -hmm. run your finger across the back of the spoon, does it leave a clean, sharp line? The other way that you can really be 100% positive if you're quite nervous is just use a thermometer and make sure it cooks to like 175 degrees Fahrenheit, and then you know you're good. So you start by cooking that lemon curd, and it's super tangy. It's not overly sweet. And then you set some of that aside as your sauce for serving. And then the rest of it goes into this other custard mixture. You kind of make a custard with a custard for, for for that bread mixture. And for the bread itself, like what type of bread do you like? I think you can use any bread. The one I call for 
in the book, in the recipe, is challah, like an enriched mm-hmm. kind of eggy, very lightly sweet bread. Um, and I take the crusts off. I prefer crustless bread pudding. It depends on kind of what you're going for, but I do think it's not as much about the flavor as it is just like the texture. I think that it's nice to have a more uniform texture throughout, so I do remove the crusts. Mm-hmm. But anything that's kind of neutral, a neutral, slightly soft white bread is great, like a Pullman. You could use a sourdough loaf if you wanted to, and it would kind of enhance that tanginess that you get from, mm-hmm. from the custard base. Um any other kind of like, a, you know, brioche is kind of a classic option. That's a very, very rich bread. That's like super buttery. I think it can be a little much. I think it can make the whole thing like just a little bit, just too rich um, in a way. But if, mm-hmm. if you have that on hand or you know of like a good source for brioche, of course, it's going to make it delicious also. So challah is an, I like as an option because it's enriched, but it's not, there's not as much like fat yeah. and eggs in it as brioche, but any kind of like white, you know, kind of like soft bread is great. All right. And then you pull that thing out of the oven and it's puffed and beautiful and golden yellow from the lemons and a little bit brown on top and plop that on the center table. And I think that will be a very exciting moment. Yeah. Um, It has this like really crackly top because there's sugar that's sprinkled on top as it bakes. Yeah, And it gets kind of browned and like darkened in places. And then you get this puddle of lemon curd. And it also is like... It not only has the texture, but it also, I love that contrast between like hot and cold in a dessert. So you can serve it mm-hmm. warm with like cold lemon curd and it's, or cold whipped cream is great too. And it's just oh, a yeah. really great dessert. And I think it's just a little unexpected for the holidays. Like it kind of hits that like lightness and richness that I always want in a dessert. Oh, I love it. All right. That sounds awesome. What other fruit desserts do you like in the winter? I mean, I love, I think apple desserts are probably... In the hierarchy of fruit desserts, they're very near the top, if not at the top. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, I love apple desserts, and I'm always looking for new ways to bake with them. So one thing I made recently where I could not believe how good it was, was <laughs> it was good like, intro. it turned out like, you know when you get a recipe and like it's greater than the sum of its parts? Sure, yeah. And it just comes together, and you're like, wow, this is incredible. I made these apple dumplings. And the name is like kind of a misnomer. It's not really a dumpling at all but basically it is a whole apple wrapped in pastry dough that's Mm. baked i started by peeling the apples and then using a melon baller to scoop out the core but not all the way i scooped out Mm, about three quarters of the core but i left the bottom intact so it was almost like a little apple cup in a way okay um then i poached it in some i mean mostly water but i added some brown sugar and some vanilla and like a cinnamon stick and a little bit of butter and poaching apples, I had never really done that before, but it gave them yeah, the most... Yeah, poached pears, but right, not... Po- yeah. Right, exactly. Poached pears make sense, but apples, you don't really see that. And it gave the apples the most incredible texture where it's like they had, they fully had their structure. They were completely intact, not even remotely beginning to break down, but they were soft. And so I ended mm. up, what I did was I took that poaching liquid, I reduced it all the way down. And when you take the ingredients, water, brown sugar, butter what you end up with is like a toffee mixture. So, okay, sure. you know, with a little bit of apple flavor because the idea of poaching is that you're softening the fruit and you're getting it to release some of its juices, which sure, is going to yeah. help you maintain, you know, a more crisp pastry when, when you bake them. So I took that like super reduced poaching liquid, which basically like cooks down into this kind of like toffee caramel mixture. I, I started through with some toasted walnuts that I had chopped up. I stuffed them in the fruit. I took squares of pastry. Oh, I in used. the cup part, like in yeah, the core right. that you pulled out. Okay, cool. Yes, in the hollow of the fruit where there was no core. I put those nuts, and you can use any nut. You could use pecans, you could use almonds, um, anything is good. That I wrap them in pastry and, you know, like lots of egg wash to keep everything sealed. I, I cut squares of pastry that were about six inches by six inches, wrap them around the apples. I was using Honeycrisp, but you can use any good baking apple. Like I, I like Pink Lady. Okay, and I was using that. pretty small yeah. apples because. I was thinking that they would be served individually, but it really ended up that they were, it's like enough pastry and enough apple that I could cut them in half. And that was like, you get this beautiful cross section. So I wrapped them in pastry. I chilled them for a few minutes just to get the pastry really cold. I put them in the oven at 375. They baked for about 40 minutes and like the pastry, they got, they got a nice egg wash and some, uh, you know, like demerara sugar on the outside. And Mm -hmm. they just like... The pastry was so flaky and they don't release that much liquid because they were basically par-cooked. And the apple texture, I failed to kind of really adequately 
articulate what the texture was like, but it's like this silky, soft, but perfectly intact texture that is super spoonable and just like so much fun. Oh, it's cool. like, that is the apple texture that I'm always going for is like translucent and soft and spoonable, but completely but applesauce, right. right? Not applesauce. Right. So I, I started the recipe thinking this was going to be something that felt kind of homey, like a baked apple. And it just turned out so elegant. I was like, this is a fantastic holiday dessert. Okay, so that's awesome. Uh, we have centerpiece desserts. Now, you know, a lot of people love to bake to give things away, little gifts or little, you know, thanks for coming kind of things. Um, what do you like to do for that? Yeah, my perennial favorite holiday cookie is a recipe that I have in my first cookbook, Dessert Person, and it's my mm-hmm. chewy molasses cookie. It is just hands down for me, and obviously I'm a little biased because it's my recipe, but I, I just think it is the perfect <laughs> holiday cookie. It's lightly spiced. It has black pepper in it, which I think is kind of an interesting... Oh, cool. People don't think yeah. of black pepper as like a warm spice, but it, it works really well. Um, it has allspice. It has um, ground ginger in it. So it is it is kind of like my version of a, a ginger snap a little bit, but mm-hmm. it has molasses and brown sugar in it, and it just... It, but they bake so perfectly. Like I, I actually baked a double recipe of it just this past week to bring to a mm. holiday party and to also store in the freezer just in anticipation of like baking off and having cookies to give to people or to, to serve um, from home. Uh-huh. So I just made them and they looked so much like the photo in the book, which I didn't make, which a food, <laughs> food stylist made. And a friend of mine also made them and they looked also just like the photo. And it's just really satisfying because like it's just so consistent how it turns out. Um, and they're really beautiful. You roll them in sugar and they, they spread out and they get kind of like crackly, crinkly on the surface. And they they like are perfectly round all the time, even if you don't really roll them in perfect spheres. So they are not only so delicious and chewy, because as I mentioned, that combination of brown sugar and molasses just keeps them like really soft after they bake. Um, they just look like that classic holiday cookie. Like they kind of look like the cookie on like a box. You know, like that, that kind of like perfect look. (laughs) So, um, and they're easy, you know, it's like the recipe in the book, you make them in a stand mixer. I did it by hand the other day because I just didn't feel like getting my stand mixer out. So they're forgiving. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I just, yeah. yeah. It was not even, it was on the counter. I just didn't even feel like putting it in and putting the paddle on it. That's how lazy I felt. But um, they turned out great. So it's just like the perfect molassesy spice cookie and really really easy and also really easy to scale up so as i said i made a double recipe um just can't be beat in my mind that's amazing oh i i cannot get over <laughs> you wrote the you wrote both these books and you're like dude it came out just like the picture in the book <laughs> sometimes full disclosure sometimes in a cookbook it's the ideal version of what the dessert yes, looks like, you know? Yes, yes. <laughs> but this is like, I guarantee like every time you make it, this is what they're going to look like. So it's mostly just a note on their consistency when baking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Claire Saffitz is the author of What's for Dessert. We'll be back with more with her in a minute. Then it's Tony Tipton Martin with the drinks. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking desserts for the holidays, and we're with the one, the only, Claire Saffitz. Let's get back to it with her. I actually absolutely hate going out for New Year's. Like, I have not done it mm-hmm. in decades because I despise it so much. It's Same. so expensive, Same. and it's like, it, it's all the pressure. You have to have a great time. It's just weird. Um, so for many years... Uh, I host people on New Year's Eve. Like, we'll, I'll just have a dinner party on New Year's Eve and we'll hang out and we'll, you know, turn on the TV when it's time to count down and all that. Um, what should I make for dessert for New Year's Eve? Right. Well, first of all, I'm with you. I go out on New Year's. I'm like, I don't even, the whole concept is like so foreign to me and, and strange. <laughs> I've maybe done it once and that was like in my 20s. But I'm, I'm, I'm the same. We, we host, we have people over, we have friends over and we like, yeah. it's just really an excuse to cook a kind of over the top dinner that we yeah, wouldn't yeah, yeah. normally cook even for like a dinner party yeah, and to sure. maybe use some special ingredients here and there and make it kind of special. But, and then half the time it's like 1145 and everyone's like, you know, we good? Like, you know, so yeah. go to bed. <laughs> but I do, I love, I love New Year's cooking. I think it's just a fun excuse to do something a little extra special. So I do have a very particular dessert picked out for this occasion. 
and it is a French 75 jelly with grapefruit. So here, another citrus option because citrus is just like a gift in the wintertime, you know, when it's cold and snowing outside and you have this beautiful selection of citrus fruits. So this uses grapefruit, which is a fruit I love. I love grapefruit so much. It Mm. does not work Mm -hmm. very well when it's baked or when it's exposed to heat. So I think the best way to treat grapefruit is to keep it in its, you know, like raw, just sort of just standard form. Sour and a little sweet, a little bitter. Yeah. Exactly. So this is a dessert that I designed for grapefruit and for just what what a fantastic fruit it is. So, and it's also kind of based off my, one of my favorite cocktails, which is the French 75. It is a gin and champagne based cocktail. Mm -hmm. Um, So the recipe starts by you make a kind of like gin simple syrup where you cook gin. So you're driving off the alcohol. um, So you're not like getting that. That alcohol burn, I think, can sometimes obscure some of the other flavors that are going on. Um, And you mix that syrup with some lemon juice, which is also in a French 75, and some sparkling wine. If you use, and I I wouldn't use any like true expensive champagne, Um, use (laughs) an expensive sparkling wine here. Um, And if you use a rosé sparkling, then it's like very beautiful and pink hued. So Mm -hmm. that's a nice touch. And you basically like mix in a little melted gelatin and the whole thing gets a kind of nice soft wiggly set it's not like gummy candy texture you know it's like okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. scoopable and you just take spoonfuls of this jelly mixture that by the way if you pour carefully you end up suspending the bubbles in the gelatin so it, there's some effervescence to it which is really I, I, okay fun. okay this that's amazing i was literally just about to ask you like oh with sparkling wine like what happens to the bubbles you could actually make it slightly fizzy even as a jelly. Yes. I mean, most of the bubbles do kind of dissipate as it sets. Okay. But if you, again, if you pour carefully and if you start with the wine cold, that's an important, it should already be chilled when you're going to assemble the dessert because then it's going to set faster because obviously gelatin sets when it's cold. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You do end up suspending some of the bubbles, which is not, not only like a great eating experience because you get that like little pop, but it looks so cool. You get the like frozen bubbles kind of oh cool yeah it's really cool so it's just so easy it's served individually which i think can also feel like a little fancy if you have cool glasses and everyone gets their own little like coupe glass or you know a little dessert bowl of of this um, dessert so you just take scoops of this jelly and you combine it with segments of grapefruit and um, in like restaurant speak, they're suprems of grapefruit. You know, it's basically like where you okay, sure. yeah, yeah. you take a knife and you cut away all of the peel and pith around the fruit. So you just mm-hmm. have this the like exposed citrus and then you cut down in between each membrane to just so you're just separating out yeah. like pure like segments, pure the, pure grapefruit. The flesh without the chewy membrane of right. each segment. Yeah. Right, none of the membranes. So they like look really beautiful and it's there's something really luxurious about not only eating the, 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 the jelly, but like having that much fruit without the work of the membranes and everything to get yeah. around it. So, <laughs> I mean, I think of that as being something kind of luxurious. Yeah, so, no, that, that, that is definitely a thank you moment. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for cutting the fruit this way. Right. Yeah. And it's just, you know, you have the champagne component and the individual glasses. And it's also kind of a light dessert, which... I'm always for, but I don't want it to feel austere. Like, I don't want to have mm-hmm. to, I don't want a dessert where then it's like, I'm like, where's, where's the real dessert after that? You know, yeah. like if it's like, oh, a <laughs> you green, got me ice cream. Yeah. Right, right. Like, where's, where's the cake? You know, like, I don't yeah, want to yeah, only yeah. have that. But there is something that also feels luxurious and rich about it too. Not rich in that, like there's fat in it, but just, it's very satisfying. But satisfying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That sounds so cool. Yeah. It's just the perfect New Year's Eve celebratory dessert and fun to eat. It's the winner. Oh, that sounds great. Well, thank you for solving my New Year's Eve uh, dessert part of the menu. Mm-hmm. And very and, easy to make ahead, by the way. I mean, you have to make it ahead. You have to let yeah. time for it to set. Yeah. So you can just kind of like set up the jelly. You can supreme the grapefruits and put them in a container in the fridge. And then all you have to do is assemble, which will take you like two minutes. Terrific. Well, thank you so much, Claire. I'm excited for these and happy holidays to you. Thank you. I'm about to go start some baking, which I'm super excited about. <laughs> and obviously, I love talking about desserts. And the holidays is like my favorite time. So it's truly a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Claire Saffitz is the author of the award-winning cookbook, Dessert Person, and her latest bestseller, What's for a Dessert? 
You can find her recipes for those chewy molasses spice cookies and for that souffléed lemon bread pudding at SplendidTable.org. So I'm not much of a drinker. I don't drink at all, in fact. But when my friend Tony Tipton Martin decided to write a cocktail book, I jumped at the chance to work on it with her. And that's because what Tony does is write recipes that are inspired by, or in some cases directly drawn from, the 200-year-old canon of cookbooks written by Black people. She unearths these recipes, many of which we enjoy today, and shares the histories of how they were invented by or mastered by African-American cooks through the ages. Her latest book is Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs, and Juice, Cocktails from Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. Hey, Tony, it's great to see you. Hi, Francis. It is such a thrill to be here with you. Obviously, I'm biased, but I've been so happy to see all the terrific response to the book. And I know you've always talked about, you've always written about how your work is for the ancestors. But what has been the most gratifying thing for you as you've been talking about this book with people? Well, I love that question because the other day I posted kind of irreverently, but also funnily that the ancestors were doing the jitterbug. Yeah. <laughs> um, right now, because this book is doing um, things that I had not imagined. And one of the main things that it's doing is drawing new audiences to the history of the ancestors because people are interested in cocktail making. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, you have all these recipes that you have, you know, either remade from these historic recipes or that are adopted from, you know, people who are working today that you admire. Uh, I have to imagine also means that at all your holiday parties that you're going to, you're going to be expected to shake up some drinks now. <laughs> There's a whole new pressure upon me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not just, you know, Auntie Tony's bringing the cake. It's Auntie Tony's going to make the... <laughs> it's going to shake up the drinks. Well, listen, I write about uh, the coffee liqueur recipe. I explain not only the historical relevance of people of color making Kahlua, mm. but I also have this tradition that I created of making Kahlua cinnamon rolls. And I make them at Christmas. And originally, the idea was you didn't get them unless you came to our house for Christmas morning. Mm. And, you know, I did that when my kids were little. It was a way to let them be able to stay in their jammies and play with their toys. And then all of the adults could hang out and we'd have these amazing cinnamon rolls oozing with um, this decadent Kahlua syrup. And so, of course, that's a tradition everybody's going to be looking for. But now I've actually suggested that people make Kahlua liqueur and give it as a holiday gift. Ah, yeah, so yeah. I suspect, in addition to all of the cocktails and the food I'm supposed to make, I will also now be <laughs> <laughs> putting Where's aside bottle? little <laughs> bottles that are, you know, Where's I'll be bottle? on internet searching for gift-sized bottles to put my new coffee liqueur in. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been asking, you, I guess, about, like, what are great holiday gifts, so check. Okay, but I want to talk to you about eggnog, because I, you know, I don't drink anyway, but eggnog in particular has been something I have always struggled with, the taste, the flavor. But <laughs> when you wrote about it, I got that context that made me go, maybe I want to try a little eggnog again. Tell us about your eggnog recipe and some of the folks who have influenced it. Well, it was fun to trace the history of eggnog um, back to Tom Bullock and Julian Anderson, two men who published recipe books in the early 20th century. And they both had these recipes for eggnog, but they described them as bowl of eggnog. So I carried on that tradition in this book by calling my recipe a bowl of eggnog because eggnog is a classic Christmas tradition. But people are also, I think, because of their concerns for food safety, and maybe just because we're all time-strapped, but everybody's kind of reaching for that carton of pre-made processed eggnog and then doctoring it up, right? But this recipe is rooted in a tradition of something called the Tom and Jerry cocktail, where they actually make an egg-based paste and then dilute that with spirits that are added to it. And one of the authors in the collection, Lena Richard, offered two versions. She offered a hot version and a cold version. And the hot version serves the purpose of actually tempering the eggs for you. Yeah. So in the book, you do reference the Lena Richard recipe. And she was in New Orleans. Tell us about her. Well, you know, she's one of my favorites in the history of African-American foodways, because in 1939, she self-published a collection of her recipes. And she called the book Lena Richard's New Orleans cookbook. And she actually had a television show on local TV 
15 years before Julia Child appeared mm-hmm. on television. So it's just that. so fun. I do too. I just love being able to say that there was a Black woman cooking on television before this iconic person that we revere so much, Julia Child. She owned a restaurant. She packaged food for sale that she shipped and sold. Um, but here's the thing about her cookbook. She publishes this thing in 1939, and then James Beard discovers it. And he proposes to Houghton Mifflin, his publisher, that they reissue this book on her behalf, which they Mm. agree to do. What's interesting about that reissue is that when the book appears, uh, her photograph, like a cameo image of herself with pearls, I believe, um, that picture is removed from the book. Mm. And the book title is changed to the New Orleans cookbook by Lena Richards. So already we start to see the ways that African-American presence in recipes and published cookbooks is marginalized. Yeah, it's like where she becomes a little bit more secondary. And it's... Absolutely. Yeah, there's someone made a choice there. Well, let's go to a a more festive uh, recipe, although, as we know, history is not always festive or celebratory. Um, Your pomegranate demerara rum punch. Um, Well, can I pick up on something you said there? Because I think that's really important for our listeners to understand that... People think that when we talk about history, it's got to be a downer. It's got to be a sad story. And what I Mm -hmm. hope people are going to start to understand about this work is that we do have to tell you the history. And in some cases, it can be a little challenging to hear. Maybe it's going to be a Mm -hmm. little confrontational. Maybe it's going to change some perceptions of things that you thought you knew. Sure. And that's all okay, because at the end of the day, we're all coming to an agreement that This is history worth remembering. These are people who we want to know their names. We want to mention their names when we make the dishes that they're attached to. And we want to celebrate them for now being recognized. So I'm saying that as I head into the history of rum. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Because you know that that is already a complicated story. Um, And so what we'll do this time is rather than go there first, let's talk about the modern era. Shannon Mustafer is an amazing bartender, bar educator, Mm -hmm. rum expert, and she's really taken a whole new approach to tiki drinks. And we think Mm -hmm. about tiki as these syrupy, sweet island things that have little paper umbrellas in them. And she wants us to have a whole nother appreciation for what we're doing with our spirits as it relates to these tiki-type drinks. And so using Demerara rum from Grenada is a way of focusing our attention on the unique distilling practices that are regional Mm -hmm. um, and draws our attention to the expertise that people of color have in understanding terroir and particular flavors that emerge from a region. So we learn about that rum And it's flavor notes, that they're smoky and very nuanced. And they're going to give your rum punch a whole nother dimension rather than the the thing that we've come to know through that sweet little poem uh, that originally was created to help people remember the portions of how to make the drink. And it goes like this. It's one part sour, which could mean lime juice, two parts sweet, which could be simple syrup or a grenadine kind of syrup, Mm -hmm. three parts strong, which is usually rum, and four parts weak, which generally has meant fruity juices. Mm -hmm. And tell us about the the recipe you actually came up with, the pomegranate demerara rum punch. Well, one of the things that was really fun to integrate into the classic recipe for rum punch was uh, Matthew Rayford's Gullah Geechee Pomegranate Shine. So he's got a variation of moonshine that got me thinking about making homemade grenadine. Mm. And uh, Matthew macerates whole pomegranates in ginger in Everclear. And I'd never experienced Everclear. It's like this 100-proof uh, clear yeah, it's, it's vodka type high, yeah. high octane, right? <laughs> you can light it on fire for sure. <laughs> right. Um, and so he turns it into a very simple cordial that he ages and you get this beautiful vivid red spirit from it. And so it got me thinking about how I could make my own non-alcoholic pomegranate syrup. Yeah. And I, you take pomegranate juice and you reduce it with sugar and you do a splash of pomegranate molasses 
to fortify the pomegranate flavor, right? Yes, that's right. And you also can add uh, an orange twist. You could add flavors as you see fit. But the idea is that grenadine itself is a pomegranate syrup. Mm -hmm. And bar professionals use simple syrup in place of sugar because it helps bring the drink together faster. Um, They don't have to stir as much to dilute the sugar um, by making a simple syrup. And in this case, adding pomegranate juice and brown, rich cane sugar gives you some hints of molasses that adding that little splash of pomegranate molasses just amplifies. Yeah. And with that Demerara rum you talked about, that, that, that sort of smokier rum, I can imagine those flavors together. Well, you know, I love hearing you talk about how you came to this recipe because I feel like it is so indicative of your work. Like back when we first started working together, you told me like the mission of your work was to bring together the past and the present, but also really show, you know, it's not just, oh, Black people have this innate ability. It's about competence and skill and innovation and creativity. And I love that you just showed us that. So, uh, you know, I appreciate you so much and happy holidays to you. Oh, Francis, thank you so much for having me. Happy holidays. Tony Tipton Martin is the author of Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs and Juice, Cocktails from Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. You can find their recipe for pomegranate rum punch at SplendidTable.org. That is our show for the week. I hope you're having a beautiful holiday season. You're really sharing it with the people that you love. We'll talk to you next week. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Shaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetta Casper. It's made each week by technical producer Jennifer Lukey, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your downloads and take some time to leave us a review. We want to hear what you think. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. Mm-hmm.